Advent series as we get close to Christmas, working through the O antiphons. And so, so far, we have considered our need for Jesus to be our wisdom, our Lord, our root, our key, and our rising sun. And this week, we're going to remember how Jesus is the king of the nations. Um, I'll read the antiphon first, and then Annette is going to be reading our scripture this morning. So, uh, the antiphon. O king of the nations and their desire, the cornerstone making both one, come and save the human race, which you fashioned from clay. Annette. Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this prophecy uh, and the certainty of it that Jesus will be king of the nations and that he will reign with such authority and power and kindness and wisdom that we will have no more need of swords um, and spears, um, only gardening tools. That's all that will be left to be done cultivating the earth, the renewed earth. We look forward to that day. We long for it. I pray that you would speak to us this morning, um, our role in waiting uh, for that and what to do while we wait. Uh, we pray that you bless this morning and um, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. It shall come to pass. Uh, we get so accustomed to the idea of prophets in the Bible that we I forget how outlandish that is, right? To speak about the future with such certainty. Uh, last week in Isaiah 8, the prophet contrasted his ministry with that of spiritual mediums and necromancers. So the people were appealing to um, those who thought they could speak with the dead, um, speak with spirits. Uh, we still have those today. Here's a picture of the astrologist that my family passes every day on our way to school. Uh, it's got five stars on Yelp. Um, and so if this isn't working out for you, it's in West Portal area, go for it. Um, Isaiah ridiculed these alternatives to the prophets. And he talked about them as those who chirp and mutter. And that's what you will get in these businesses throughout the city. Um, it's interesting reading the uh, five stars and all the stories and testimonies that people have of how their life was changed and affected uh, positively um, by this person, um, Lila, I think is her name. And um, 
but Isaiah describes it as chirps and mutterings, um, where there are these vague patterns, these little bits of information, connection points that then we are left to organize into a story. And that is um, such a contrast to Isaiah's ministry, thus saith the Lord, this will happen. Um, I don't think many of us, um, I think there might be a few, I'd love to hear stories of people who appeal regularly to astrologists and mediums in here, so like, let's talk about that. Um, um, I don't think there are many of us, though, that do that, um, but I do listen to lots of chirps and mutterings. I have sources for that. I read and listen to a lot of news and cultural commentary, um, and I'm not sure that's really that much better, right? They, these are people who claim to predict a short-term future. They tell me what's going to happen in the year to come, in the years to come. They are wrong all the time, right? But I just keep listening to them because we just sort of have like moved on to the next thing. Uh, we read advice columns. We follow industry gurus on Twitter. Uh, Instagram's algorithm has figured out that I tend to linger over Enneagram-themed uh, posts, and so those things sort of show up um, in my feed. Uh, who are the authoritative voices in your head? What are the chirps and mutterings that you stop to listen to? In Isaiah 8, the prophet is saying, why settle for chirps and mutters? Why go to the dead? Listen to the living God's clear voice. This is the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. It shall come to pass. Isaiah was a prophet called by God to speak loudly and clearly, definitively, the word of God to God's people. He's not a man who muttered and chirped. The Bible does not mutter and chirp. It speaks. And what did Isaiah speak? Isaiah's message was clear. In summary, God's people had wandered away, and so he starts in the second verse of the whole book, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's the setting of Isaiah's ministry. They still considered themselves followers of Yahweh, but Jerusalem's devotion to the Lord was fake. It was empty. And how does he know that? Because of the rampant social injustice that was on display. They were raising their hands in worship, but their hands were stained with blood, is what Isaiah said, the blood of the poor. Their minds were drunk with luxury. Their worship was all a show. And so as a result, God's judgment was going to come on his people. Isaiah prophesied that God, the Lord of armies, would summon, he would whistle, for the nations to rise up and destroy Jerusalem and cart its people off to be slaves again. He refers to these foreign attackers as the rod of his anger, right? Their weapons were an expression of his fury. No matter what those empires thought of themselves, they didn't think they were the rod of God's anger, but that is what Isaiah says. They are merely tools in the hand of God. In light of that message, it's really no wonder that the people resorted to necromancy, right? Um, like, you imagine like a chronically unhealthy person uh, whose doctor says, you know what, you need both difficult surgery and some significant life change. And then you just sort of like, you know what, I'm going to get a second opinion. And so they sort of like jump over to the astrologists. It's not that bad, is it? And more than that, I think the appeal to the mediums is, is a desire for a more vague prophetic word, a word that we could manipulate to our own prejudice. But God's word is not like that. It's clear so that there is no excuse. And yet, the good news of Isaiah is that he's not only a prophet of doom. 
right? Isaiah reminds the people that God will not be angry forever. Judgment is definite, but grace will get the last word. God's heart will eventually soften toward his people, and he will rescue them from their enemies and restore both Judah and Jerusalem by sending a savior. That's the story of Christmas, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Christmas is an amazing turn of events. Imagine if Christmas had never happened. If Christ had never been born. That's a discipline of Advent. To consider an alternative history, to remember the darkness and imagine if it had never been lifted, to imagine the tragedy of Christ never coming to save his people, that this is all there is, that chirps and mutterings are all we have. Life is just your daily newsfeed, your motivational Instagram accounts on repeat forever. That's it. C.S. Lewis describes Narnia, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia are such great children's stories, and it's this magical world, but then as you dig into it, you learn about the white witch and the cold that she has put over the place, that it is always winter but never Christmas. We need Christmas. We need the promise of Isaiah 9-2 we considered last week. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is the shock of Christmas. After hundreds of years of darkness, literally 400 years of God's prophetic silence where he said nothing to his people, no words, no signs, just the daily news feed, the chirps and mutterings, and then all of a sudden he sends an angel to a virgin. Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's hard to imagine the shock of this moment. 
even though Mary is obviously a member of the believing remnant. Right? Clearly, she and Joseph were people of deep faith. They believed Isaiah's prophecies. They believed the Messiah was coming, and they prayed regularly for his coming. But it still must have been a shock that after all these years, it was now, it was finally arrived, and that he would come to them, to her, in so humble a manner. But this is what Isaiah foretold. A child born to a virgin, Emmanuel, would be born into poverty, into a conquered land. That would be the sign of God's faithfulness, of his presence. Not only that, Isaiah foretold that this Emmanuel would be rejected. King Jesus being laid in a manger is not the last shocking thing for Mary. Simeon and Luke 2, when they present uh, Jesus at the temple, He warns Mary that Jesus would be opposed and that a sword would pierce her heart too. But this too is in fulfillment of Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah 53 predicts that God's great Savior King would be rejected. Isaiah 53 verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, who could think that? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is Jesus prophesied in Isaiah. But then Isaiah continues, the servant king's rejection by his sinful people mercifully, miraculously results in God's acceptance of that same sinful people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the Messiah's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's pretty wild to 
think about this. We can't read this and not think of Jesus. But Isaiah was writing this without any concept. It's wild how much it maps on to the story of Christ. In the face of Israel's hypocritical religion, one thing was clear to Isaiah. They were hypocrites. They sacrificed sin for, they, they made sacrifices for sin made with bloody hands, a wink and a smile. And so God was going to sweep them all aside, take matters into his own hands, and send his own son, his own servant, to sacrifice himself for their sins. So no more of this pretending, no more bulls and goats. A sacrifice made once and for all so that Zion, Judah, Jerusalem would be finally and truly restored. And for today, in today's antiphon, there is hidden in this promised salvation a bigger promise. Jesus will bear the sin of many. And who is this many? In Isaiah 25, throughout all of Isaiah, God will save, restore, bless. He will swallow up death forever, but for whom will he do it? Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is why we feast at Christmas. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? What is that veil? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Today's Antiphon, king of the nation, takes the already wonderful story of Emmanuel, already shocking, already humbling, and makes it more wonderful, more shocking, more humbling, even bigger, because in Isaiah, the Messiah will not just be Israel's savior, he will be the savior of the whole world. The whole world. And that is Isaiah's unique contribution to the prophetic witness of the Old Testament. It's how resolutely he announces a worldwide salvation. Read Isaiah 49. It's a conversation that Isaiah is prophetically imagining between the Messiah, who will be Jesus, and God, his Lord. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Listen to me. The Messiah is speaking. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. That's us. We are very, very far from Jerusalem. We are the peoples from afar. Jesus is addressing us and announcing, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But Jesus, or the Messiah, responds and says, 
I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And so one can imagine Jesus saying this after a lifetime of ministry to the Jews, which was leading to some fruit, right? But a lot more rejection. And as he foresees his own death, is Jesus' labor in vain? Has he spent his strength for nothing and vanity? And so the Lord, his Father, responds to him, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, that is Jesus' purpose, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, the Father says to the Messiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It is too light a thing. It's such a wonderful turn of phrase. It is too light a thing that you should only be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Why in the New Testament are the Gentiles, the faraway peoples, most of us, I think, invited to believe in the Messiah? It's because the gospel is too good to be kept secret. It is too good to be kept narrow. It deserves the attention of all people everywhere. Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he deserves a global kingdom. He deserves a kingdom made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It would be an offense to his perfection, to his grace, to his goodness, to his glory, if he was only sent to save the Jews. That's too light a thing for a story like this. It's too light a thing for the Son of God. God's salvation will be God-sized. His salvation deserves to reach to the ends of the earth. And so, Isaiah 49, 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to a discouraged Messiah, one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, do not dismay. Upon your death and resur resurrection, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Throughout the Antiphons, we have seen how Jesus is wisdom itself, he is Yahweh. He is the absolute ruler and sovereign. He is the root of everything. He is the key to unlocking all mysteries, treasures, and freedom. He is the rising sun sent to extinguish the dark reign of death. Next week, we will see how he is God himself, Emmanuel, with us. With such a role, it would be too small for him to remain the king of just a few people. He will be the king of the nations. His kingdom will be full of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. One cannot overstate the shock of this. 
to Isaiah's original hearers. And it would have even been a little confusing to them because Isaiah spends many, many chapters judging each nation one by one, the nations that they knew of in their vicinity. He wasn't just a prophet against Israel and Judah, and so he's got hard things to say to Babylon, to Assyria, to Philistia, to Egypt, to the Cush in faraway Ethiopia. No one gets a pass from Isaiah. Some of these nations are the same groups of people who Isaiah is predicting are going to come and destroy Jerusalem and exile its people. And these people are going to be saved. These are nations that made war against Israel. They practice child sacrifice, some of them. The religion includes prostitutes. But in Isaiah 19, Isaiah prophesies the future blessing of both Assyria and Egypt. So that both their... So by talking about Assyria and Egypt, he's bringing their ancient enemy in the Exodus and their new enemy. And they'll both be blessed. Isaiah 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. There will be unity between warring empires, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. One wonders if this is not what was so offensive to Isaiah's first listeners. Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands. Was it their racism, their ethnocentrism that prevented them from hearing God's call to repentance? We're God's people, right? We're the work of his hands. Israel thought their chosenness was about their glory, but it was about God's glory. And if it's about God's glory, they should have been delighted at the thought of the world being brought into God's kingdom, Isaiah's commitment to universal salvation is not based on like a modern commitment, a modern equivalent to diversity, equity, and inclusion. That might be the outcome, but it's not the foundation. Isaiah's message is based in the supreme glory of the Lord, who deserves to be worshipped by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and will be worshipped by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All knees will bow, Philippians 2 to the glory of Christ. It is simply too small a thing to be racist in God's kingdom. It is simply too small a thing to be nationalist or ethnocentric or classist or whatever. Jesus is the king of the nations, and it should be our goal as a people to proclaim and display the redemptive kingdom diversity of the gospel. How will this wild turn of events happen? 
How will it be that not just the Jews, but Assyrians and Egyptians and Babylonians, Romans and Greeks and Europeans and Americans and the Chinese and Koreans and Indians and Indonesians and First Peoples, how will it be that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, when we look at the news, when we see how much fighting there is, how will they be saved? How will they be brought together? They will be saved the same way the Jews are saved, by grace, through repentance and faith and obedience to the coming Messiah, through forgiveness of sins and obedience to God. Assyrians won't be saved by being good. Assyrians, atheists and Muslims and Buddhists, astrologers, they won't be saved without turning to the Lord, but turn to the Lord they can. So Isaiah 56, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him because, besides those already gathered. Again, this had to have been so shocking to Isaiah's first hearers. It was still a shock to people in Jesus' time. It was still a shock to people in the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, and even today. I was thinking yesterday I, kinda, I wonder if the rhetorical strategy of Isaiah is he's so hard on Judah and Jerusalem, chapter after chapter, and what he does is he points out their wickedness, their failure, and often the way he does it, the way he's hard on them, is by pointing out all the ways they're just like the surrounding nations. Where it's like, you guys are no different, right? You worship idols, you see cult prostitutes, you oppress the poor, Israel is just like them. And the beauty of that is then when God invites them back, he might as well just invite everybody else back too because they're all the same, right? If they sin the same way, they can be redeemed the same way. If I sin the same way as you, if I sin the same way as everyone else, then we can all accept grace. As we consider the glory of Christ's birth, as we marvel at the promise of redemption, it's worth asking, is my faith too light a thing? Is your faith, is our faith as a community too light a thing? It's just not big enough. Am I settling for just a few people believing in Jesus? People like me, people that seem like obvious candidates. Or am I so taken by the glory of Jesus, Emmanuel born in a manger, come to set his people, all people free, that I want as many people as possible to worship him? Not simply for their sake, which is significant, right? He is humanity's only hope for salvation, but for Christ's sake, who deserves to be worshiped, he deserves for everyone to bow the knee to him. Friend, there is not a house on your street. Picture the houses on your street right now. 
There is not a house on your street where Christ does not deserve to be worshipped. There is not a branch of your family tree where he is not meant to be worshipped. There is not a roommate, a person at your company, there is not a neighborhood in our city, there is not a nation or culture or ethnic group or politic that is beyond the reach of God's salvation. Is your salvation, is my salvation too light a thing? Is the scope of my hope too narrow? Is the great commission from Jesus not great to me? In a month, on January 15th, our second week back, so we're not meeting January, or December 25th and January 1st, um, but we'll meet on January 8th, but then January 15th, we'll start the story of God, uh, which is an annual rhythm. It's a, we walk through the entire biblical story, and we do it in a way that is really hospitable to people in all stages of faith um, and uh, non-faith. And it's just a really good opportunity to invite people to learn more about Jesus. Uh, over the years, the story of God has been instrumental in bringing people closer to faith and opening up conversations. Um, my mother-in-law, who had not been back to the Catholic Church in probably 30-plus years, um, came to the story of God, but then and it wasn't the only thing, but, but is now like a restored Catholic. Uh, went to confession after like 35 years. Uh, and uh, you always like reference the last time, like how long has it been in confession, which I didn't know this. I'm like lifelong Protestant. But, uh, and she's like, it's been 30 years. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, the story of God has been effective and helpful. Uh, after that, we're going to be preaching through the Gospel of John. And John is a great book for learning who Jesus is. Uh, it is full of conversations between Jesus and outsiders. And my hope is that these sermons and spaces are welcoming uh, to non-Christians, but also that they inspire us to be conversationalists like Jesus. That's one of my hopes in like walking through the Gospel of John. It's like, Lord, can you help me talk to people like Jesus talks to people? And I want, I want that. And just find myself like really emotional this morning and this week and this year, just longing for people to come to faith because Jesus deserves to be believed in. And an important thing to add, because evangelism can make all of us so nervous, today's antiphon says that Jesus is not only the king of the nations, but he is also their desire. He is the desire of nations. So remember Isaiah 25, verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We often doubt, I doubt people's interest in Jesus, but something the Antiphons teach us is how Jesus is everyone's great desire. It's all, it's what we all want. Wisdom, Lord, key, root, light, king, God, like that is what everybody wants. Not just someone to save me, but this someone, not just someone to save me, but someone to save us. We long for a king of the nations who can bring us all together.
Who can you tell about Jesus? Who can you invite into Christian spaces? And not just the obvious person, but like who is the Assyrian in your life? Who is the Egyptian? The person who feels so far away from faith, but who will one day say to you, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Thank you so much. There are people in your life, there are people in this city, there are people in this world who are waiting for Jesus. They don't know it, but he is their desire. He is what they want. And so who might it be in your life? You don't know, you can't know, which is why you should just assume it's everybody. Everybody wants this. In your life, who might it be? Maybe you're here and you're the Assyrian. You're the foreigner and the pagan. And you look around this room and you're wondering whether you belong here. That's a super hard feeling to experience. So many questions of identity um, present today. And, and at the same time that people are wanting like unique identity, they are also longing for connection with other people like them. And I just want to encourage you, none of us belong here, right? None of us deserve membership in God's kingdom. None of us have earned a spot at Citizens. We are here because of Jesus. And we come together from all kinds of different experiences, places, socioeconomic classes, ethnicities, and cultures. Why do we come together? Because of the glory and beauty of Jesus shown in his life, death, and resurrection. He has forgiven us. He has adopted us. He has filled us, and we love him for it. And you are welcome. Isaiah's prophetic word is our eternal future, a diverse world brought together in worship of Jesus. Back where we started in Isaiah 2, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So Jesus will not be one among many. His glory shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. That's a desire in people to go to Jesus. They see his wisdom. They see his mercy and kindness. They are dis displayed in the gospel, and they want to follow him. And so we hope and, and want to be people who go out, but we're also praying for this miraculous like inflow of people who are just drawn to the person of Christ. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the law from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And in the meantime, before that happens, what do we do? O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the call of faith for those who believe, is to walk in the light of the Lord. It is too light a thing for God to just save Judah. Jesus deserves far more glory than that, and so God made him into a light for the nations. Let us walk in that light, glorifying him ourselves, persuading others of his glory, 
because he is their desire. He is your desire. Let's give him his due. Let's pray.